Welcome to the AWP podcast series. You are now tuning in to a reading by Stephen Dunn, presented by the Poetry Society of America. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, February 3rd, 2011. Now you will hear Rob Casper provide the introduction. My name is Rob Casper. I'm the program's director for the Poetry Society of America. Uh, we're thrilled and delighted to be here and to welcome you to this afternoon's program featuring Stephen Dunn. Mr. Dunn will read for the first half of this program, and then I will follow with a moderated discussion. Uh, a few words about the Poetry Society of America. We are the nation's oldest poetry organization, and we just turned 100 years old this October. In addition to sponsoring up to 16 readings in 13 cities across the country, we also sponsor 14 annual contests and a fellowship, chapbook fellowship program, which is now in its sixth year. Today's feature poet, Stephen Dunn, is the author of 17 books, including Selected and New Poems, 1995 to 2009, chosen as one of the notable books of the year by the American Library Association, and Different Hours, which received the 2001 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, as well as Local Time, a national poetry series selection. His new collection of poems, which apparently is now in Bound Galleys, Here and Now, is forthcoming from W.W. Norton in May of this year. So, Dunn's many honors include the Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations and the National Endowment for the Arts, and a Distinguished Artist Fellowship from the New Jersey State Council on the Arts. He has taught creative writing and held residencies at Columbia University, University of Washington, Syracuse University, Princeton University, and the University of Michigan, among others, and is Distinguished Professor of Creative Writing at Richard Stockton College in, of New Jersey. And he lives not so far away in Frostburg, Maryland. Dunn's poetry is as grounded in the world around us as it is willing to examine that world and our place in it. He sees the self in terms that are clear and clearly universal and speaks with an intimacy and humility that would be shocking were it not so subtly constructed. His is the lyricism of an old friend and his discoveries and arrivals of the plain-spoken, hard-earned kind. We gain immeasurably from his work and his wisdom. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Dunn. Thank you, Rob, uh, and, and thank you all for coming and braving whatever weather you might have had to brave to get here. Uh, I usually try to start with a poem that's appropriate to where I am, place, and I, this is only tangentially so since it's about weather, and also finally, as you'll see, about dictatorships and oppression. The Wind. Tomorrow, our weatherman said, the wind would hardly exist in Kansas, yet would arrive full throttle in Maryland. And with his pointer showed us his version of something beautiful, the arc and dip of the jet stream. I must confess a part of me wished he'd also speak of tedium and long afternoons of nothingness. But finally, 
He was a Doppler man, dour, only as smart as his equipment. Next day, the wind did did come full throttle and branches fell, and I was careful not to die. A calm followed, then the mail, and in it an aerogram from a friend in a land so tumultuous, tedium for him would would have been a luxury, already the stuff of nostalgia. It was a disturbing letter, and I imagined a country without a weatherman, and the wind, therefore, without anyone to speak for it, or worse, that the wind belonged to the rulers now, and everyone was forbidden to speak of what they had remembered, those big, generous winds that once had mussed their hair and felt so good against their faces. If a clown. If a clown came out of the woods, a standard-looking clown with oversized polka dot clothes, floppy shoes, a red bulbous nose, and you saw him on the edge of your property, there'd be nothing funny about that, would there? (laughs) A bear might be preferable, especially if black and berry-driven. And if this clown began waving his hands with those big white gloves that clowns wear, and you realize he wanted your attention, had something apparently urgent to tell you, would you pivot and run from him or stay put, as my friend did, who seemed to understand here was a clown who didn't know where he was, a clown without a context. What could be sadder, my friend thought, than a clown in need of a context? If then the clown said to you that he was on his way to a kid's birthday party, his car had broken down and he needed a ride, would you give him one? Or would the connection between the comic and the appalling as it pertained to clowns be suddenly so clear that you'd be paralyzed by it? And if you were the clown and my friend hesitated as he did, would you make a sad face and with an enormous finger wipe away an imaginary tear. How far would you trust your art? I can tell you it worked. Most of the guests had gone when my friend and the clown drove up and the family was angry. But the clown twisted a balloon into the shape of a bird and gave it to the kid who smiled, letting it rise to the ceiling. If you were the kid, the birthday boy, What from then on would be your relationship with disappointment, with joy? Whom would you blame or extol? I want to read a kind of double love poem uh, to uh, my wife and to language itself. Uh, with a little complaint in it about people who love semiotics too much, uh, has has a uh, few lines stolen from Neruda, but I won't tell you which they are. Language, a love poem. When I say your hair is the color of a moonless night in which I've often been lost, I mean approximately that dark. And the dove outside our window is no symbol, merely wakes us at dawn. It's made a grayish creature that coos quite poorly. 
Peace is an entirely different bird. The rose to me signifies the rose, and the guitar signifies a musical instrument called the guitar. At other times, language is a slaughterhouse, a hammering down, its subjects hanging from hooks on the verge of being delicious. When I say these things to you, it's to watch how certain words play themselves out on your face, as if no one with imagination can ever escape being a witness. The whale, for example, no matter its whiteness, is just a mammal posing as a big fish, except, of course, if someone is driven to pursue it. That changes everything, which is not to suggest I don't love the depth of your concealments. When I say your name over and over, it's because I cannot possess you. But what's the, uh, the most overused and wrongly used word of our generation? What would you say? Awesome, yes. <laughs> that would be my vote anyway. Uh, uh, you know, people say awesome ice cream cones. I mean... Uh, anybody who has ever experienced awe, and probably not few, probably only few of us have, know that it makes you silent. You don't go around using it as casually as people do. So this is a poem that starts with that anyway. It's called Love. Found dead in an alley of words, awesome, no hope for it and share, which must have fallen trying to get by on its own, and near the trash cans, almost totally exhausted, the barely breathing cool. <laughs> but there's love among the disposables, waiting as ever to be lifted into consequence. And here comes a forager looking for anything that might get him through another night. Love's right in front of him, his if he wants it. In the air, the ashy smell of cliches, the stink of obsolescence. He's leaning love's way. All the words are watching, even the dead ones. It's as if what he does next could be the, uh, could be the equivalent of restoring awe to awesome, that love, if chosen, might be given back to love, made new again. But the man is just a man out for easy pickings. Or has he just remembered how early on love always feels original? Let us forgive him if he keeps on foraging. After. Jack and Jill at home together after their fall. The bucket spilled, her knees badly scraped, and Jack with not even an aspirin for what's broken. We can see the arduous evenings ahead of them and the need now to pay a boy to fetch the water. Our mistake was trying to do something together, Jill sighs. Jack says, if you'd let go for once, you wouldn't have come tumbling after. <laughs> He's in a wheelchair, but she's still an item for the rest of their existence confined to a little rhyming story. We tell it to our children who laugh already accustomed to disaster. We'd like to teach them the secrets of knowing how to go too far, but Jack is banging with his soup spoon, Jill is pulling out her hair. 
Out of decency, we turn away, as if it were possible to escape the drift of our lives, the fundamental business of making do with what's been left us. The imagined. If the imagined woman makes the real woman seem bare-boned, hardly existent, lacking in gracefulness and intellect and pulchritude, and if you come to realize the imagined woman can only satisfy your imagination, whereas the real woman, with all her limitations, can can often make you feel good, how, in spite of knowing this, does the imagined woman keep getting into your bedroom and joining you at dinner? Why is it you always bring her along on vacations when the real woman is shopping or figuring the best way to the museum? And if the real woman has an imagined man, as she must, someone probably with her at this very moment, in fact, doing and saying everything she's ever wanted, Would you want to know that he slips into her life every day from a secret doorway she's made for him? That he's present even when you're eating your omelet at breakfast? Or do you prefer how she goes about the house as she does, as if there were just the two of you? Isn't her silence finally loving and yours not entirely self-serving? Hasn't the time come once again not to talk about it? What goes on? After the affair and the moving out, after the destructive, revivifying passion, we watched her life quiet into a new one, her lover more and more on its periphery. She spent many nights alone, happy for the narcosis of the television. When she got cancer, she kept it to herself until she couldn't keep it from anyone. The chemo debilitated and saved her, and one day her husband asked her to come back, his wife, who after, all had, who, who after all had only fallen in love as anyone might who hadn't been in love in a while. And he held her so different now, so thin, her hair just partially grown back. He held her like a new woman, and what she felt felt almost as good as love had. And each of them called it love because precision didn't matter anymore. And we who'd been part of it, often rejoicing with one and consoling the other, we who had seen her truly alive and then merely alive, what could we do but revise our phone book, our hearts, offer a little toast to what goes on? Talk to God. Thank him for your little house on the periphery, its splendid view of the wildflowers in summer, and the nervous fork prints of deer in that same field after a snowstorm. Thank him even for the monotony that drives us to make and destroy and dissect what would otherwise be merely the lush, unnamed world. Ease into your misgivings. Ask him if in his weakness he was ever responsible for a pettiness, some weather, say, brought in to show who's boss, when no one seems sufficiently moved by a sunset or the shape of an egg. Ask him if when he gave us desire, he had underestimated its power. And when, if ever, did he realize love is not inspired by obedience? Be respectful when you confess to him 
you began to redefine heaven as you discovered certain pleasures and sympathize with how sad it is that awe has been replaced by small enthusiasms, that you're aware things just aren't the same these days, that you wish for him a few evenings surrounded by the old stunned silence. Maybe it will be possible then to ask why this sorry state of affairs? Why, after so much hatefulness done in his name, no list of corrections nailed to some rectory door? Remember to thank him for the silkworm, apples in season, photosynthesis, the northern lights, and be sincere. But let it be known you're willing to suffer only in proportion to your errors, not one unfair moment more. Insist on this as if it could be granted, not one moment more. I wrote a book some years ago uh, called Rifts and Reciprocities, which uh, some people thought of as prose poems, uh, and, and that's all right. I thought of them as prose paragraphs that, that were tangentially related. Uh, uh, and I would, they were such twosomes that I would never read one apart from the other, but now I don't care. So, <laughs> so I'll read you a, a, a few. Um, scapegoat. It's the Day of Atonement, and Aaron has a brilliant idea. Two goats as offerings to the Lord. One he kills as a personal atonement for himself and his house. The other is the scapegoat. He lays both hands on its head, confessing the sins of the people, then sends it off into the wilderness. Poor goats, lucky unburdened people. It's easy to see why such an idea caught on. There's a burnt offering, too, involving a ram. In the face of the ineffable, Aaron tries to cover all bases. But we're most interested in the goat that bears our large and small mistakes and carries them away from us. Leviticus knew how to tell a story, but here's what was never reported. The Lord saw the goat in the wilderness, stumbling, half dead. He said to it, a goat's life is an awful thing. This was not my intention. What they've done to you is just one more of their sins. This is a poem called, or a prose piece called Acquaintances. Uh, and I read it uh, to some of you Facebook people who have many too many friends, I think. <laughs> Acquaintances, not friends. A friend, after all, is someone with whom you need not discuss important subjects, though often you do. Nor do you have to clarify the status of your relationship, except when you must. Your good news doesn't bother him too much. Bad news brings out the empathetic best in you both. And each of you knows what small misfortunes to keep to yourself. To be just an acquaintance is normal enough, but terrible to be an acquaintance when you want to be a friend. Terrible when one person is thinking friend, the other acquaintance. And after a long separation, those rapid, uncomfortable pats on the back when they hug. Show me a back patter and I'll show you an acquaintance lost among his intuitions, 
whose body's Morse code is doubt, doubt, doubt. At a party full of acquaintances, it's almost as bad. What do we say after we've said what we usually say? Better to be a stranger with small hopes and a plan. One of the benign but rather repetitive arguments I had with my ex-wife had to do with crows. Uh, her contention that crows always travel in threes. Uh, no amount of empirical evidence would alter her view in this. Uh, seriousness. Driving the Garden State Parkway to New York, I pointed out two crows to a woman who believed crows always travel in threes. And later, just one crow eating the carcass of a squirrel. The others are nearby, she said, hidden in trees. <laughs> she was sure. Now and then she'd say, see, and a clear, dark trinity of crows would be standing on the grass. I told her she was wrong to under or overestimate crows and wondered out loud if three crows together made any evolutionary sense. I was almost getting serious now. Near Forked River, we saw five. There's three, she said, and two others with a friend in a tree. <laughs> I looked to see if she was smiling. She wasn't. <laughs> or she was. Men like you, she said, needed written down, notarized, and signed. History. It's like this. The king marries a commoner and the populace cheers. She doesn't even know how to curtsy, but he loves her manners in bed. Why doesn't he do what his father did, the king's mother wonders. Those peasant girls brought in through the secret entrance. That's how a kingdom works best. But marriage? The king's mother won't come out of her room, and a strange democracy radiates throughout the land which causes widespread dreaming, a general hopefulness. This is, of course, how people get hurt, how history gets its ziggy shape. The king locks his wife in the tower because she's begun to ride her horse far into the woods. How unqueenly to come back to the castle like that, so sweaty and flushed. The only answer his mother decides is stricter rules, no whispering in the corridors, no gaiety in the fields. The king announces his wife is very tired and has decided to lie down and issues an edict that all things yours are once again his. This is the kind of law history loves that contains its own demise. The villagers conspire for years, waiting for the right time, which never arrives. There's only that one person, not exactly brave, but too unhappy to be reasonable, who crosses the moat, scales the walls. Don't do that. It was bring your own if you wanted anything hard, so I brought Johnny Walker Red along with some resentment I'd held in for a few weeks, which was not helped by the sight of little nameless things pierced with toothpicks on the tables, or by talk that promised to be nothing if not small. But I'd consented to come, and I knew in what part of the house 
their animals would be sequestered, whose company I loved. What else can I say except that old retainer of slights and wrongs, that bad boy I hadn't quite outgrown, I had brought him along too. I was out to cultivate a mood. My hosts greeted me but did not ask about my soul, which is when I was invited by Johnny Walker Red to find the right kind of glass and pour. I toasted the air, I said hello to the wall, then walked past a group of women dressed to be seen, undressing them one by one, and went up the stairs to where the Rottweilers were, Rosie and Tom, and got down with them on all fours. They licked the face I offered them, and I proceeded to slick back my hair with their saliva. And before long, I felt like a wild thing, ready to mess up the party, scarf the hors d'oeuvres. But the dog said, don't do that. Calm down. (laughs) After a while, they open the door and let you out. They pet your head, and everything you might have held against them is gone, and you're good friends again. Stay, they said. I don't know if any of you have a particular time of day when you're most likely to get in trouble, uh, but I do. Uh, And it's usually around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, This is a poem that will speak to that. Bad. My wife is working in her room, writing, and I've come in three times with idle chatter, some no-news news. news. The fourth time, she identifies me as what I am, a man lost in late afternoon in the terrible in-between, good work long over, a good drink not yet what the clock has okayed. Her mood a little bemused, leave me the hell alone, mixed with a weary smile, and I see my face up on the post office wall among men least wanted, looking forlorn. In the small print under my name, annoying to loved ones in the afternoons, lacks inner resources. I go away guilty as charged and write this poem, which I insist she read at drinking time. She's reading it now. It seems she's pleased, but when she speaks, it's about charm and how predictable I am. How when in trouble, I try to become irresistible, like one of those blonde dogs with a red bandana around his neck. Sorry, he's peed on the rug. (laughs) Forget it, she says. This stuff is old. It won't work anymore. And I hear, good boy, good boy, (laughs) and can't stop licking her hand. more. Around the time of the moon. The experts were at work doing expert work. Amateurs were loving what they hardly knew. Houston, tranquility, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed, came over our televisions. Accidental poetry, instant lore. Our parents couldn't believe it. Can you believe it? Said my sister Sam. Elsewhere on terra firma, a chemist must have smiled an inner smile, having perfected Agent Orange. Mistakes were made, said our president. Nary a personal pronoun could be heard. 
My friend on acid said he was the bullet, but sometimes also the wound. The moon was finished, he went on to explain. Never again would haunt or beguile. Mary Travers was leaving on a jet plane, didn't know when she'd be back again. I, for one, was sad. Soon everyone had a harmonica, on every street corner a guitar. A few of us thought we thought it was possible to change the world. We were love's amateurs, its happy fools. I let my hair grow into a badge, became an expert on right and wrong. And under artificial light in my room, read strangely comforting books about alienation and despair. Meanwhile, almost unnoticed, quotation marks descended from the sky began to fit around everything we thought we knew. And trod upon or not, the obstinate moon would only be itself, kept bumping up the crime rate, lifting the helpless seas. Shatterings. In my dream, I'm addressing a large class about Trotsky and Rambeau. Trotsky wanted perpetual revolution, I tell them. Rambeau, a derangement of the senses. Wouldn't it be fun to have dinner with them? Most of my students have forsaken home or are planning to. They don't want to have dinner with anybody. They've mastered the boredom they think conceals them. But the hungers of the few are palpable. They're famished for the marrow of experience, for the yet-to-arrive viscera of their historical moment. Rambeau is, is now 22, I say, gun-running in Africa. He's already given up poetry, grown tired of breaking its rules. Trotsky has fled to Mexico. Stalin's thugs with, will soon cross the border with their ice axes. My class is called Whatever I Feel Like Talking About. <laughs> no matter what the subject over the years, it's the only course I've ever taught. Meanwhile, a rose explodes on the chalkboard. Three crows call a hole in the sky. My job is to shatter a few things. Should I put them back together? What's going on here? What kind of dream with Rambeau in it finds itself concerned with responsibility? Yet I ask, what's the responsibility of the lyric poet? How it feels being himself? Why should anyone care? And the political philosopher, shouldn't he know wildness can't go on forever? Perpetual anything, anything I say, give me a break. Just how many deaths can a good idea justify? This dream is in need of a boutonniere or maybe a bullet suspended in midair. But just in time, a student rises and says, in the spirit of Trotsky, let's tear up all our notes from this class-ridden class. Let's caress the world with leaflets. Half of the class follows him out the door. Clearly, I've poorly educated the others who remain seated, terrified they can't find what's next on the syllabus. But there, isolated among them, is that boy, my Rambodian, all testosterone and refusal, the one I always teach to, Look how he shrugs and heads toward the exit, as if the future already had assured him it had openings for someone 
so afraid of it, unafraid of it. His assignments unfinished, his grade in doubt. Two more. Sweetness. Just when it has seemed I couldn't bear one more friend waking with a tumor, one more maniac with a perfect reason, often a sweetness has come and changed nothing in the world except the way I stumbled through it, for a while lost in the ignorance of loving someone or something, the world shrunk to mouth size, hand size, and never seeming small. I acknowledge there is no sweetness that doesn't leave a stain, no sweetness that's ever sufficiently sweet. Tonight a friend called to say his lover was killed in a car he was driving. His voice was low and guttural, He repeated what he needed to repeat, and I repeated the one or two words we have for such grief until we were speaking only in tones. Often the sweetness comes as if on loan, stays just long enough to make sense of what it means to be alive, then returns to its dark source. As for me, I don't care where it's been or what bitter road it's traveled to come so far. It tastes so good. I'll conclude with this. It's called a postmortem guide. Uh, the epigraph is for my eulogist in advance. Do not praise me for my exceptional serenity. Can't you see I've turned away from the large excitements and have accepted all the troubles? Go down to the old cemetery, you'll see there's nothing definitive to be said. The dead ones were all kinds, boundary breakers and scallywags, martyrs of the flesh, and so many dumb bunnies of duty, unbearably nice. I've been a little of each. And please resist the temptation of speaking about virtue. The seldom tempted are too fond of that word, the small-spirited, the unburdened. Know that I've admired in others only the froth straining to be good. Adam's my man and Eve's not to blame. He bid in, it made no sense to stop. Still for accuracy's sake, you might say I often stopped, that I rarely went as far as I dreamed. And since you know my hardships, understand their mere bump and setback against history's horror. Remind those seated, perhaps weeping, how obscene it is for some of us to complain. Tell them I had second chances, I knew joy. I was burned by books early and kept sidling up to the flame. Tell them that at the end I had no need for God, who'd become just the story I once loved, one of many with concealments and late-night rescues, high sentence and pomp. The truth is I learned to live without hope as well as I could, almost happily, in the despoiled and radiant now. You who are one of them say that I love my companions most of all. In all sincerity, say that they provided a better way to be alone. Thank you very much.
Thank you for a great reading. One of the great opportunities when I get a chance to do a moderate discussion like this is to get questions answered, or at least get questions partially answered that I've wondered about for a long time. Mm -hmm. The balance between uh, rhetoric and imagery, the balance between argument, uh, framing an argument, and you know, showing showing that argument through through things. And I know you talked about being someone who is as a younger poet, very image-oriented and yeah. moved away from that. I wonder if you could just talk about how that works in your poems now, how, you, how you're able to kind of hold those both and not delve too far into imagery or, or, or um, be too constrained by argument. Well, years ago I read it, and when I was starting to write, as you're talking, away from the image and being more discursive, I read an essay by the Italian poet Pavesi, uh, which was very liberating for me, in which it, part of the argument was that you didn't have to write a poem metaphor after metaphor, image after image, that the entire poem was a metaphor. Uh, that, that was how I was writing. It was, it was wonderfully liberating. Uh, but my other way, which really has been with me somewhat all along, I suspect, is that my philosophical disposition is to disagree with myself. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those people who might make a statement and immediately hear its opposite. Uh, so often my poems work themselves down the page uh, that way, either a series of counterstatements or a series of refinements. And do you feel like those that kind of th those sorts of moves are the kind of thing that poetry can best reflect, or do you feel like you'll argue something and then suddenly an image will come along and change things? I'm not against image or metaphor in, in, in any way, and I, I love them when they when they arrive. I just don't like to crank them up. I don't think that's uh, poetry. I mean. Uh, I love, you know, what I think we should be doing is say what, saying what we mean for as long as we can, uh, straight out. And then, of course, because life is complex and our emotional lives are messy, uh, there's a point where you can't, you can no longer say it straight and you have to reach for analog, you have to reach for metaphor. So that I love metaphors that arrive out of necessity, uh, that, that arrive out of a certain urgency of the moment, rather than uh, what I think are false notions of creative writing, image, metaphor, one after the other. Well, I think it's interesting. We can look at a poem like um, If a Clown and how that poem seemed to use the image, use the, or the conceit, you know, of this, of this clown, lost clown character to get to that moment of saying, um, how far would you trust your art? And do you often feel like, like your poems allow you situations to move into saying something that, that um, might be surprising, that might argue for a way of living that's... Well, you know, those, those are, that poem actually came rather, rather fast and, uh, you hope to arrive, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, there's inspiration that precedes the poem. 
if you wait for that, you're going to write about four poems a year unless you have a more interesting life than I do. Uh, but the major inspiration for me occurs uh, once I'm in the poem where the language that you find yourself using becomes seminal. Uh, it, the sounds of it become things that ask for companions. Uh, so uh, uh, that moment in the poem uh, became available to me because of where I had gone. And I was, you know, the poem is, nothing in the poem ever happened. It was just uh, those nice moments when you're writing a what-if proposition mm -hmm. for as far as you can go. One is that, I know you've talked about um, uh, in other interviews moments that um, startled yourself and that kind of the moment when the, when the engine of the poem gets going. And I wondered, um, often do those moments end up at the ends of poems or do they frame the beginnings of poems? Do you suddenly become startled and think, okay, this is where a poem, this is, this is the beginning of the thing that I need to make? I think if any of us who, who've written a long time truly confess... There are so many answers to that poem, to that question, that you, you wrote something over here, you put it over here, uh, you wrote your most interesting line in the 19th line, and it had nothing to do with the poem, so that uh, you had to write something in the second line that to allow it to, so that your mind had appeared shapely all along. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, putting poems together is... is uh, you know, some like that one pretty much came came in a flow, but that's that's uh, that can happen. And the stitching together parts of poems, stealing lines from old poems, stealing lines from other poets, uh, fucking them up a little bit so nobody knows. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, the poems just uh, there's no one way for anybody to write a poem. Well, I know you've talked a lot about uh, the importance of revision to you, and, and, and I, I mean, clearly your poems have a great, great shapeliness. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about and using another poem that you read as an example. Don't do that. Um, talk about the relationship between mimesis and artifice, between the saying things that, that you feel like your audience wants to directly get, and then launching off into, into a world, uh, either through the structure of the poem or the images themselves, or in the case, suddenly dogs that are that are human-like, um, that we know is not part, we know is sort of invented, and how you balance those out, too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's no doubt that artifice has gotten most of us uh, as far as any kind of uh, genuine emotion, you know. Uh, genuine emotion often produces very bad poem. But when you look at something that's poorly made, uh, you might say that's artificial. Uh, when the very same things, well made, you call a poem. You know? uh, artifice is, 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 I mean, that's the, the root of it. We, we, we make things. I think the, the key for all uh, poets, uh, young poets in particular, 
is to become makers rather than utterers. Well, it raises another question that I want to sort of delve into. At one point you talked about um, nakedness and, and stylized. You were talking about a particular poem at the time, but you sort of emphasized uh, the value of stylized. And it makes me want to get back to uh, what you're saying about genuine emotion creating very bad poems. Is it because a certain kind of deep, uh, very direct, very powerful emotion is one that uh, a, a given writer can't quite get around or can't continue well, it's, it's, just, it's just harder uh, I mean uh, I'm all for genuine emotion but uh, if you feel strongly about something the great danger of putting something in a poem because it happened to you yeah. you know the worst reason possible and I, I'm, I'm lost track of your question say, say it once again oh I lost track of question <laughs> Um, I wondered if, if, it's, if it's impossible to, to handle big, genuine emotions because you can't, you can't, as a poet, as a writer, really wrap your, wrap your okay. mind around it. Okay. No, I think, I think uh, big, genuine emotions are lucky to have and, and fine. The same thing is operative with, with uh, the little poem with not very big emotions is that you have to get beyond your original impulse for your subject. Uh, If you're still working your original impulse by the end of the poem, haven't developed any other allegiances, I suspect the poem isn't going to be very good. So with the poem of large emotion, I would hope to have those poems uh, pushing me towards something. But if I... If I don't make discoveries in them, if I don't discover... Most poems have hidden subjects. And uh, if we're lucky, we, we locate them. Yeah. And it's that much harder when, you know, with political poems, for example, where you're, you have your convictions. Uh, how to, I'm all for political poems, but the, but the problem is how to say that which you don't yet know. And, and, and the same thing in big love poems and, you know, grief poems. Sure. Well, it's funny you bring up love because I think about the uh, two poems you read, um, the double love poem and the one you followed it with, language of love poem, yeah. which were themselves, you know, I mean, they're layered poems, but they're also very, they're foregrounding their arguments. They're foregrounding their kind of, their kind of, um, need to kind of say, wait a minute, you know, and that kind of inner contrarian that you've talked about. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it helps to be uh, opposed to something. Uh, and, uh, you know, that gives the poem energies. And, and uh, I think of, you know, uh, when I see, most of us begin our poems with our conventional workaday minds. And, you have to say something to startle yourself out of that. Uh, and for me, it's usually either uh, something that just comes from nowhere, but it's usually something that establishes a counter-tension, some, mm-hmm. something posited. Uh, uh, I remember uh, beginning the love poem, the language, love poem, uh, the language, and... 
not, not thinking of it as anything except uh, a love poem to my wife. But then other, other things got in there, and, I had, and the imagination had to reach for them and accommodate them. And, and that, I mean, the great fun is to be in the middle of a poem, it seems to me, uh, where, I mean, every, every poem has crossroads where you can take it here, take it there, take, where, where you have to make the decisions. And those decisions you make in the, in the middle of the poem uh, really separate poets from, from other poets and, uh, and, uh, and you from yourself from being having a good day or a less than good day. What are, given that, what, are, what, are, what comes to mind uh, when you think about some of the most difficult uh, uh, decisions you've made in the middle of the poem or the, or the scariest or the, or the most shocking? Well, when you say... Uh, Somebody's just written an essay about me writing wisdom lines, which, you know, you're always a little bit in trouble. But now and again, you think you might have written one. And, and it's best to bury that line. <laughs> to, have, to have it in the poem, but not make it the last line, not, make mm -hmm. it, not have drum rolls and mm -hmm. the music coming up behind it. Uh, and... There have been those lines. There's been the lines that uh, that might be too confessional, too naked. How to transform that? Uh, how 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 to make it a poem? I mean, I think uh, for those of us who write first-person poems, as I mostly do, it's very useful to begin them with boredom, uh, with being very bored with yourself. Uh, uh, so that you might make something. Uh, also, to, and this is, this is the hard thing, to know that nobody cares about your life, uh, your, your hardships, your loves. They don't care, and they shouldn't care uh, unless you can make them care. Uh, so the burden is on you as, uh, uh, as a maker always. So when I read when I when I write something that seems uh, juicy or naked or wise, uh, I got some work to do. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting to think about because isn't it? There's that sense that poems have that kind of authority to, to say something wise or juicy or naked. Yeah. Well, also the problem of uh, you know we counsel our students not to write abstractly and. I like to get away with that stuff, but uh, it's good, always good advice for students because if you don't know something, say, about the history of ideas, that idea that you think is wise, you know, about everybody has heard it 20 times before and they're, they're not excited by it whatsoever as you are. So uh, you need to have some familiarity with with ideas and the history of them before you even should risk a, a, a wisdom line. Yeah, yeah. I have a question about form, and I'm going to preface it by saying that I discovered um, that you, uh, through a video that I watched, um, that you are quite the tennis, table tennis player. Um, I'm a big, big fan of table tennis. I'm the only person I know who's taken table tennis lessons. 
Um, Let's play. Yeah, I'm sure you beat me, no <laughs> doubt. But um, it seems so. It seems so. So as an activity, um, so opposed. So opposed to your poems, you know, which are so, so. Um, and they're not frenetic. They're not. They're not. You know, um, reactive. They're very slow and thoughtful. And um, as I said in my intro, humble. But I wondered if there was something about about table tennis that had any relation to your poems whatsoever. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, I've been an athlete all my life. And, and uh, the only relationship I can think of between uh, athletics and, uh, and poetry writing is that you have a chance to be better than yourself. You have a chance to exceed yourself by process. In the poem, it's by process. In, in, if you're a basketball player and you're making a lot of shots in a row, uh, you're, on that, you're on that kind of role. Uh, but that's as far as I wish to push that, that uh, comparison. I totally understand. I totally understand. <laughs> Let me just try a different direction um, and uh, see where that would go. Uh, you've talked a lot, I know, with um, with uh, your book, Riffs and Reciprocities, about... Well, it seems like people ask you a lot of questions about it as prose poems, and you kind of, get, kind of defend it as, you know, maybe prose poems or not. But I'm kind of interested in the opposite perspective. Given that you wrote those, um, what did that teach you about what it meant to, for yourself, break your lines into lines and use stanzas? What did it show you about how poems work that's different from that? Uh, I don't think anything, really. Uh, my goal was to write great sentences, mm -hmm. uh, one after the other, and to try not to say anything that I had already heard or said. Uh, maybe something like that is behind a lot of, uh, of poems, too. Uh, and I suspect that if you take... And I'm not calling my prose great, but I suspect if you take great prose and break the lines uh, properly, everyone would be happy to call it a poem. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. I thought I saw a hand out there. Is there anything subject-wise um, that you've turned away from in a poem, that you've denied yourself in a poem? Well, not subject-wise. Oh, really? Okay, in any sense. Well, you know, if, you, if you've written as long as, as we have for these years, you've written a lot of bad poems. I hope uh, I could recognize that and turn away from them fast. Uh, uh, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you need your friends uh, to say or your editors to say no. Uh, uh, but, you know, certainly there, there have been poems uh, that I thought were were working a certain personal quality that didn't get beyond that, where I was unable to transform them and they were just kind of um, two naked things. I put them away. Those are many things which I've turned away from. Uh, and uh, I mean, when, you, when you're younger, I think you're more inclined uh, 
just and this is not a bad idea just just for the sake of of writing poems uh, which is essentially maybe at a certain point practice a kind of practice uh, uh, you stay with trash you stay with your less than good stuff for a long time uh, I try not to do that anymore but but I certainly would stay with a poem that that hadn't arrived at its concerns at its real concerns for a long time when I was younger but I try not to now I've, I'm actually been uh, working on some Curious things. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, Stephen Corey knows, which is to to uh, write a faux interview with myself, uh, in which there are no questions. I only write the answers. Uh, uh, the questions, I guess, uh, are presumed. Uh, but that's been that's been a lot of fun. Uh, but really what I've been doing is I, I, I've been working on the galleys of my new book. Uh, I have occasionally been writing a new poem or, or two. Uh, but I'm in that, I'm in that little uh, uh, limbo world right now between books and, and uh, just seeing what comes. Okay. If, if you find yourself in those creative doldrums, is there any writer or poet No, not one in particular, but I have uh, very good notebooks. Uh, nothing of my own in them. Uh, great sentences, great lines from other people, pithy moments. And I'm, when I'm stuck, I'm, more, I'm likely to turn to those notebooks to see how something in there might, might push me towards something. Did someone tell you once upon a time to start taking notebooks as advice for for writers, or did you? Was it something you just no? Took no, on? I just I just did. I think I started to do it around the time I decided uh, I did that I was going to write essays, which was in my forties. Okay, uh, and it really has continued uh, ever since. No, it's mostly worry. Uh, I, I, I have a friend who's, who's a sculptor who talks about, uh, uses words like enthusiasm and how happy he is and excited when he does something. I'm still worrying it forward, uh, worrying about it. It's good. I, you know, you rarely give your poem a high five. You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't know artists who who who, who do that. Uh, I think maybe when you're very young and and, and you get excited about uh, uh, you know just making a poem almost turn out right, um, it probably hasn't turned out right, but you think it does. You might be a little excited. I I uh, I've been satisfied. And a little pleased, and then then I'm full of doubt, uh, uh, pretty quickly. 
It does beg the question if you are someone who feels often doubtful about your poems and you're also a serious, serious reviser, how you know how to do that, how you know, okay, this poem has arrived at a place that I can't, I can't massage it anymore, or, I can, or it's arrived at a place that is, that is fulfilling something that I didn't yeah. know it would. I mean, the, the, uh, somebody was asking me this the other day at a, at a Q&A, and he said, you're not allowed to use Paul Valerie's uh, line, you know, which the poems are... Uh, abandoned, not finished. So I, I wasn't allowed to do that. So I, uh, I will to use that. So I had to think of something else. And uh, uh, I, I think it's something has something to do when, regardless of content, when you've solved all the aesthetic problems that you can think are there. Uh, but you, I, I can't tell you how many times I'm wrong uh, about a poem being finished. Uh, and, you know, I show it to my wife. She makes an ugly face at it. Uh, I send it to my friend in the mail. He writes back, you know, uh, why uh, it needs to make two more moves. <laughs> you know, this is... Yeah, and and uh, those things those things make sense o- often, uh, and sometimes uh, you cling. I think you should cling to what you've done in life for as long as you can. Uh, you know, you just don't want to give it up. Uh, but certainly, the history of my writing poems is that I probably don't have it and, until I do. And then, and then more worry. So, and then, and then you're, you know, it, it's nice to have an editor who says you can't revise anymore. It's it's all over. Uh, and and then you then you leave it, you let it go. Yeah, that makes sense. I think if you write, if if it's a naked moment and it's it's a consequential moment to you. Uh, you need to find ways to allow it in the poem. I mean, it's all about giving yourself permission, writing, writing poems. You give yourself permission to what you found yourself doing and saying. So if it were a naked moment that, that, I, that mattered to me, I wouldn't throw it away. I, I would. I would see what could be done with it. Um, uh, but you know, naked moments are just ones that are like uh, how like un- unreconstructed lives. You know, mm-hmm. let me tell you about your life. I had an interesting life. I want to hear my novel. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. You you, you have to reconstruct. Uh, and uh, and then 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 you could do a lot with your nakedness. I think if you if you can uh, reconstruct it. Do you mean in a way by nakedness the ways in which we which we're trained to or just naturally without much thought speak of the things that have happened to us or the things that we've thought? Because I mean, certainly it's easy enough to follow you know to 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 uh, talk in the phone with someone 
say, oh, this happened to me, and, and not really examine how you're, how you're phrasing it, how you're containing it within language. Well, there, as you know, there are people who actually think they're telling the truth when they, when they say what they mean. Almost never are they telling the truth. Not even close. Uh, I've always loved that strategy in Mark Strand's uh, elegy to his father, uh, where a question is posed to the father, like, why did you travel so much? And the father gives an answer. And then the question is posed again. Uh, and you get a little more essential answer. I mean, you do that with your friends. How are you? Fine. Um, uh, and you look at them again, they might tell you something a little better, and then don't accept that either. And, uh, and uh, you get... It's, uh, the truth is an achievement. It's, it, it is not what you say. That's probably the best place we could, we could, we could end on. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.